this morning. Matthew 27 and verses 15 through 26 we'll be looking at. And we were in this passage last week. And the title of the message this morning is, I am Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Verse 15. Now at the feast of the governor, as was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and upon our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Thus says the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, purify our eyes to look upon the holiness of Jesus Christ as the spotless lamb here laying down to be slain for us. Cleanse our ears. Set them apart to hear only that which the Spirit says through the word of your Son, Jesus Christ. Cleanse my tongue that I might speak the word of God with pure lips holy and acceptable before you. And lastly, Lord, purify our hearts. May the washing of the water from the regeneration of the Word of God do a cleaning work in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would sit us before Jesus in this moment and learn of Him. And we will love you more for it. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a few names that Matthew highlights in his 28-chapter story of Jesus the King. That is, after you get past chapter 1. Names of the Magi, the lame, the lepers, the soldiers, they all elude his pen as he writes with spirit-filled intention to tell us the story of one person who came to be king, who took our place, dying for our redemption. Names like Mary and Joseph, Judas, and of course Peter, dot the pages of Matthew's amazing story of a virgin-born king who rallied a multitude only to die naked and alone. But just before Matthew writes in the last columns on his scroll, he chooses to give us one more name. One more person who he thinks we should know something about. 
All other names have not been etched on papyrus, but this one name he is convinced we must hear about before he closes up the scroll. It's the name of a man who we know very little about, Barabbas. That's the name of the man who missed the cross. His name in Aramaic means Bar, son, and Abba, father, Barabbas. Put together, it just means son of the father. Some early Greek manuscripts of Matthew's gospel actually render his name Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. You may have never heard that his name included the name of our Savior Jesus. But Joshua was a popular name. Joshua is how Yeshua is how you would have heard Jesus' name. It means the deliverer, just like the Old Testament deliverer. And so many a son, many a boy was named Yeshua. Not only do some of the early writings include that this is his name, Yeshua Barabbas, but we also see Pilate makes a distinction uh, between the two men asking the crowd, which one should I deliver, Barabbas or the Jesus who is called the Christ? It's probable that he is distinguishing between Jesus who says he is the anointed one, Jesus who says he is the Messiah, the one who he is attending to on trial, from the nearby Jesus who is in the prison near the praetorium, who is a murderer and a thief and an insurrectionist. According to Mark 15.7 and Luke 23.19 and Acts 3.14, Barabbas is called a murderer. And by the way, it's highly likely that the two thieves who stood on the crosses next to Jesus were some of his henchmen. So Barabbas and his henchmen were to die that day. It was a movement. It was an insurrection. They had The reason why we use the word thief, we say thief on the cross, is it was a common word. They would do whatever it took in order to gain position, in order to gain popularity, if it meant overtaking people's goods and wealth, in order to fuel this, this movement of insurrection against Rome, if it meant murder. And so thief would just be a common word for a criminal. And so the criminals on the cross very likely were some of his henchmen. And Barabbas is called a robber, a common word robber. He's also called a murderer, but a robber in John 18.14. According to Josephus, the ancient historian, the word used for robber, lestus, refers to members of the nationalist movement called zealots who supported themselves by robbery. Barabbas was probably a leader, if not a member of that movement. And the two thieves who were crucified were probably part of that movement. And in order to, in order to win, in order to, to, um, to be sentenced and to capital punishment, this would have been a chief, a chief crime. You weren't crucified for being a robber. There were many robbers those days. But you're crucified for being an insurrectionist. The two thieves were sentenced to be crucified. So we have some very... Wicked men on the cross next to Jesus, not just ones who had stolen some some goods off the shelf. They were freedom fighters following Jesus Barabbas.
In Matthew 27:16, we see that Barabbas was described as notorious. But this word really just means he's famous, popular, notable. He was probably well known in Jerusalem and it seems that he had a large following. He was even known to the Sanhedrin for they knew about his crimes here as they stand in the praetorium. And so when he was sentenced to crucifixion, his fans, the Jerusalem crowd and the Sanhedrin, gathered early in the morning to demand his release instead of Jesus Christ's release. And this morning I want us to look at two truths as we head into this passage. And the first one is that the world promises self-redemption. The world promises self-redemption. Why would so many people side with such a man like Barabbas? Why would so many people demand his release instead of Jesus, the miracle worker, Jesus, the great healer and the great physician, Jesus, the great cook and chef on the sides of the mountain, Jesus, the great teacher? Why would so many people side with such a notorious and infamous and wicked man named Barabbas? The answer is simple. And Matthew has been showing us the answer all through his book. He's building his case for you. And Barabbas is just another character in his plot and really in the sovereign God's plot to show you something about yourself and to show us something about the world. And that is the world that the world promises self-redemption. Everyone wants what they can see and touch in the here and now. They believed, like our world believes, and we so often believe that in this world, we believe in this world and not the world to come. We saw this last week when you remember that we saw Pilate wanted to worship at the feet of his self-made gods, the gods of power, to maintain the illusion of control over his own kingdom. We saw this the week before when, when Pastor Golden opened the Scriptures into the beginning of chapter 27 where we saw that Judas would pay dearly in an attempt to satisfy the false economy of his own kingdom. The price for redemption in his failed kingdom building was still by means of his own efforts. So we see, we see Pilate in his attempts of self-redemption through power. We see Judas in the, in the exhausted price for self-redemption through suicide. And the week before Judas, so before Pilate and before Judas, we saw Peter out, outside of the trial, looking into the trial and being accused of being a follower of Jesus and swearing up and down he never knew the man. And that, so that week before we saw Peter who denied Christ in the midst of the monkey trial so that he could preserve his own reputation in the kingdom he was building. So Peter's building a kingdom and Judas is building a kingdom and, and Pilate's building a kingdom and they're all building it through the means of self-redemption. And listen, this world is building a kingdom through self-redemption. And the fact is that you and I in the flesh without the Spirit are building a kingdom of self-redemption. And so the answer is why did so many people side with Barabbas? Is the answer is they, they believed in having power now. They believed in materialism and self-redemption. They didn't believe in the prophets and the promises of God. No, they wanted to take matters into their own hands, leaning on their own understandings and saving, saving themselves by whatever means possible except for the means that God had provided. They wanted to take matters in their own hands and they wanted to wage guerrilla warfare. And this warfare, they thought, was just against political power and maneuvering. But really, it was a guerrilla warfare against God's kingdom. 
Their kingdom motto, the world's kingdom motto, is power now, acceptance now, popularity now, wealth now, recognition now. And by the way, this beats into the rhythm of of us as well. We live in flesh in this way. It resonates with us. We want all these things. None of us, all of us would say, if we were honest, we want those. We want people to accept us. We want people to like us. We want wealth. We want power. We want those things. Maybe some things we want more than other things, but the reality is that we are very much like Pilate and Judas and Peter and Barabbas and the fickle crowd in the praetorium of Pilate on that day. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, recording this scene in John 18, Dr. James Boyce quotes another commentator named Barnhouse, and he describes Barabbas' reaction this way. The Roman soldiery had stopped the riot and had taken Barabbas. His blood guiltiness was established. He was flung in his cell there to wait the moment of his death. A man who is to be hanged has difficulty in keeping his hand away from his throat where the rope is soon to choke him. I've been told by a chaplain in a prison where men are executed in a gas chamber that the condemned practice long breathing and sometimes will hold their breath until it seems their eyes will pop from their sockets. They know that they are going to be put into a gas chamber and that they will hear a little hissing sound of incoming death and that the breath they are now forcing into their lungs will be the last that they shall ever know. They will hold on and on, straining at the thongs that tie them to their chair until they are forced by the inexorable law of breathing to exhale the last breath that contained pure oxygen and take in the death that floats around them. Barabbas must have looked at the palms of his hands and wondered how it could feel to have nails ripping through his flesh. He must have remembered scenes of crucifixion death and the slow agony of the victims who suffered at times for a day or two before merciful death came to release them. He must have awakened with a start if he had heard any hammering in the jail, and his mind must have anticipated the sound of the clanging hammers that would bring death near to him. And then in his prison, he heard the vague murmuring of the crowd that roared outside at the murmur of a troubled sea. He thinks he hears his own name, He can tell that there are angry cries and fear rises in his heart. Then he hears the sound of a key in the lock and a jailer comes to him and releases him from the chain that wound around him. For the Bible tells us that he was bound. But he must have thought that his time had come. But the jailer takes him to the door and tells him he is free. Jesus Barabbas was saved by Jesus, at least physically on that day. And only Barabbas can say, Jesus physically died in my place. He's the only one who could ever say that. But you know, I have found that there are an awful lot of people who claim to be Christians who have the wrong view of substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Even though these Christians faithfully attend Bible studies and fill church pews on Sundays and do great things in the name of God, they believe that Jesus died as an example for them but they do not believe that they are so guilty that Jesus had to die for them. So like Barabbas, they see a Jesus who takes their place physically, someone whose life ended too soon, 
a good man and even God himself, maybe, but still they believe that there is good enough in them to deserve heaven and there is nothing bad in them to deserve hell. They readily say, these people that I come across, yes, Jesus is God. He died on the cross. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But because they don't say, and even more importantly, don't believe, I repent of believing in myself. I am not my own Messiah. I need someone to rescue, ransom, and redeem me from my lostness and sin. They don't say that. And this is so true of Christianity today. There are many who say they are Christians who have the viewpoint of Barabbas and not the belief of a sinner who knows without Christ he suffers and dies for all eternity, eternity totally deserving of separation from God. One day Jesus is coming and Pilate will be judged by him. Judas will be judged by him. And those who say they are Christians will also be judged by Jesus. And it won't matter if this person said that their hands were clean. And it won't matter if they said that they regret their choices on that day. It won't matter if they went to church their whole life or were baptized or gave money to the church or served even as a deacon or even as a minister and a pastor. It won't matter when Jesus comes to judge them. None of that will matter. You see, Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And he said he is coming again. And Jesus said in Matthew twenty six sixty four before the priest, yes, as you say it, but I say to all of you in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Pilate will be judged by Jesus and the Sanhedrin will be judged by Jesus and the crowd will be judged by Jesus and Barabbas will be judged by Jesus. And every sinner who looks to a false savior Every sinner who looks to self-redemption will be judged by Him. Why? In John 3.18, the Bible says that every sinner who fails to confess Jesus Christ is already condemned. Listen to the Word of God. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there's only two types of people in this world. Those who have entrusted their soul to the safekeeping and the cleansing work of the power of Jesus Christ to be their Savior. That person is not condemned. But the condemned one says, no, thank you. I'll make it there on my own. They stand in condemnation. And maybe that's you here this morning or maybe you're listening this morning to the sermon. And this, this is... This is an assessment of you from the Word of God. You are condemned. There's no worse news for you in all the world than to know that the judge of all creation, the judge who stands before all judges, the King of kings and Lord of lords has said, you are condemned because you have not entrusted your soul to the saving care and work of Jesus Christ. There's no more worse news than that in all the world. You are utterly condemned. But Jesus promises redemption for you by His substitution. And this is the second point of our message this morning. Jesus promises redemption by means of substitution. 
So how can one go from being condemned to being free? How can one's destiny, how can one's position, how can one's sentence be so dramatically changed? And it is dramatic to hear, and it is traumatic to hear, that you stand condemned before the Almighty God to suffer an eternal separation from Him in eternity in hell. It is terrible news. So how can anyone be free? If those who do not believe that Jesus is their Savior today, how can they be saved? In Matthew 20, verse 28, we read, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. To give His life as a ransom for many. For such a little word in our Bible. But in that for is jam-packed with the Trinitarian power of salvation for you and I. In that word for is the word substitution. To give his life a ransom for many. And in that word for is the best news in all the world. The word for there means in the place of, instead of. When Jesus died on the cross, he experienced the wrath of God against sin, our sin, for us. The moment we place our belief in him, we are saved from the wrath of God. We are then even furthermore cleansed from all of our sins. And we are brought into communion with God and granted the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is, the purity of Jesus Christ. That is, the innocence of Jesus Christ. The holiness of Jesus Christ. Just as if, listen, just as if from the time of our birth we had never sinned. That's the innocence. But even greater than that, this innocence and the purity, not only of sinlessness and of blamelessness, but the holiness of God Himself is imputed, is granted, is reckoned unto us. When that happens, when we give of our sin unto Jesus Christ and in faith believe that He was crucified instead of us, that we were deserving of the wrath of God, deserving of eternal punishment, deserving of separation from God because of our guiltiness, when this happens, we understand what the peace of God is and the liberation from sin and death and even Satan himself, and we understand what it is to be rescued from hell and all of what it is about. And Barabbas was the first substitution of the cross. He was the first substitution of the cross. But in this moment, it was merely a physical substitution. As we who are readers of the rest of the chapter in the final chapter of this Gospel of Matthew, we see this substitution of Jesus for Barabbas as sort of a foretaste of the grace that is provided at the cross. Barabbas was saved physically in this substitution, as a picture of a greater and ultimate substitution that was taking place right before His very eyes. 
This week I had a little bit of an inspiration. And so I wrote a poem about Barabbas. I'd like to read it for you this morning, and it's up on the screen if you want to follow some of the rhythm of it. I am Barabbas. Filthy Roman rule, scoundrels, tyrants, cruel. I must build my kingdom, this my holy tantrum. I am Barabbas. Come join my crusade, power, control, comrade. Finally we will shed this vile, wicked dread. I am Barabbas. God isn't moving. His covenant isn't keeping. Abandoned, lost, scattered. His people afflicted, battered. I am Barabbas. Prison cell, dungeon tell, chains, bars, and dank smell won't fracture our coalition or subdue our position. I am Barabbas. Angry mobs, oozing hatred, swelling, outrage, and clamored. Give us Barabbas, shouts, roar, tension mounts. I am Barabbas. Keys, clamor, nervous tremor, chains, rattle, doors, shudder, light, surprises, pierces, dark, hopelessness, questions. Are you Barabbas? Ransomed, freed, unshackled, rising to relief, rattled, guiltless. I am pronounced innocent. I am announced. I am Barabbas. Who is he that I am free? Who is this that he is me? Son of the Father, are we both but with his robes? I am clothed. I am Barabbas. Crucify him, screeches the throng, priests, common and me among, horror of horrors unleashed upon the one who perished. He is Jesus. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. In Barabbas we see ourselves. And this is what Matthew wants us to see. Matthew wants you to see you when he's telling you about the story of Barabbas. Barabbas is for us a living gospel parable, something that God surely wrote and the writers include as one more picture of the cross work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was done speaking in parables. He had silenced his mouth toward those who would not listen anymore to his teaching. So no more parable would go forth from Jesus' lips. But now we see a picture instead of a parable, or a parable in picture. And Barabbas is that for us. One more. One more parable before Jesus climbs that mount and hangs on that cross. One more picture of Jesus saving mercy. One more picture of broken people like you and I. One more. Will you see and listen? Matthew wants you to see and listen. He doesn't want to skip over this. And so he unveils a real-life parable in the moments before he dies. And so like Barabbas, like Barabbas, we are already condemned. 
Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn. It was already condemned. Remember John 3, 17? For He did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be what? Saved. The world is already condemned. And friend, you may have never thought of this. You may never have taken an assessment of yourself or understood God's assessment of you through His Word. But when we entered into this world, we entered into a condemned state as a, as a member of Adam's race. We're sinners. We're already condemned. One more sin doesn't make you more condemned and one less sin doesn't make you condemned. You entered into this world condemned. And Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn. The world is already condemned. But He came into this world for a purpose. For Jesus came not into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Like Barabbas, we had no light. Like Barabbas, we had no hope. We should, Barabbas should have been on the cross that day. Barabbas should have been on that cross that day. He was words away from being there. We too, without God, are very, very lost. No hope. No bargaining chip. We were sentenced to die because of our sin. We have nothing to bargain with. Barabbas had nothing, no appeal. You see, Barabbas was set free from a judicial system through a gesture of favor and political maneuvering. That's all that Barabbas was free from in that moment. But what Jesus was making available on the cross that day was ultimate substitution for all of us who, like Barabbas, stand guilty without excuse to die as sinners. The ransom substitution that Jesus offers through the cross isn't a mediatorial work between human powers. That is that Jesus wasn't just setting things right in the moment for Barabbas so he wouldn't die between two human powers, the Sanhedrin and Rome. The ransom substitution is a divine work by our almighty God. And it is between God and fallen, broken, sinful Adam's race. And there's only one who could stand in that place and Jesus did that as we will learn in the following pages in the book of Matthew. And so when Jesus says in John 8.36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, he's talking about the greatest freedom that any human can ever experience, even a greater freedom than Barabbas felt on that day when he knew he was moments from being pierced and crucified on a cross. A greater freedom than that from merely human execution and persecution. When Jesus says, I have come to set you free so that you would be free indeed, it is a freedom from you. Jesus has come also to save you from your own means of self-redemption, like Judas, like Peter, like Pilate. Freedom from self-righteousness, freedom from guilt and sin, and ultimately, Jesus has come to bring freedom from a hellish, eternal prison that awaits all those who arrogantly choose to reject Jesus to be their Messiah, their substitute.
The problem with Pilate and others is that while he signaled that he was innocent of the blood of Jesus, he was still pro-choice. You see, Pilate was willing to choose the immediate over the eternal. He was willing to take a life instead of receiving it. He was willing to depend on his own means of redemption instead of the one that was provided for him through the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. And the same could be said of us as well. For that one who has not called upon Jesus Christ yet, are you willing today to be still continuing to choose the immediate over the eternal? Are you willing to live under the, the, the lie, the deceit, that you can save your life? Are you willing to depend upon your own wisdom? How has that served you in your life? Are you willing to be honest and look upon your own wisdom and see it as, as folly, foolishness? This morning there's two points that we see in this passage that help us to understand what God desires for us. And the question that we come to is, which Jesus do you want? Do you want Jesus the Christ? Or Jesus Barabbas? And like the crowd, we sit here and you're listening, like the crowd in the praetorium on this morning, when Pilate says, which one do you want? So too, this text and the Word of God and the Spirit of God says to us this morning, which Jesus do you want? That Jesus Barabbas is self-redemption. And self-redemption always leads to death. It's deadly and it's eternally so. Self-redemption is the lie of that false gods preach to us and teach us. And self-redemption is the illusion, and I emphasize that it is an illusion of autonomy. That is, self-derived power. self Determination. Like Judas in suicide, we learn that we don't have enough in our pockets to pay for the sin debt that we owe. We are utterly broke, bankrupt, and unable to pay the price for our sin anywhere else than in hell. And that's the Jesus Barabbas. But the second point that we looked at that we look at this morning is that Jesus' substitutionary atonement has secured for us eternal salvation. Because all the expectations for righteousness were on Him instead of me. God put the expectations of holiness upon Jesus instead of me. God knew that we had failed. God knew that we were helpless. God knew that we were hopeless. And so God put the expectations for righteousness, for pure living, for holiness upon Jesus Christ instead of me on that cross. And when we place our faith in the free offer of forgiveness and cleansing from our sin, we enter into receiving His righteousness, His relationship, and His riches in grace and glory with God. Because self-redemption can never promise such surety and such security. You come up with your own means of salvation. You come up with your own means of peace. 
You come up with your own uh, thinking and, and means of eternal life. Listen, you, your self-redemption can't hold for you a guarantee. You're always nervous. Are you going to make it? You're always wondering, is it enough? You're always trying harder. And self-redemption can never promise peace. It can never promise surety. And self-redemption can never cleanse me from my sin, our sin, because you can't become clean by using something dirty. We can't wash ourselves clean. Self-redemption can never satisfy the pure and holy demands of the righteous judge. Self-redemption can never make it there. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And self-redemption is at the heart of every scheme that denies the full atoning work of Jesus Christ. Self-redemption is at the foundation of every false religion. Self-redemption is the theme of many a ruined life in scriptures. And self-redemption is the common theme of the most pious and self-righteous religious people in this world. Believe this by God. That if God did not have to send His Son into this wicked world to die, He surely would not have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the Gospel writers, hold back their pens from writing of the horrific atrocities that were done to Jesus during the scourgings, beatings, and execution of His frail body on the cross. Why? We see some words and they make us almost want to close our Bibles because we see such horrific scenes in our imagination runs. But why don't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us more descriptive words of the scourgings and beatings and lashings and torture of Jesus as He ascends the cross? Why? It's because they want us to understand something and you must understand something for the saving of your souls. Or else you remain like Barabbas whose only salvation has been physical. Listen, the suffering of Jesus Christ that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John want us to see and that the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that Jesus' suffering was not primarily physical. You say an execution on a cross is not the height of physical suffering. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying. You and I don't need someone to only die for us in a physical way, but we needed someone to pay our spiritual debt. And it was the spiritual suffering of Jesus Christ that gives you and I spiritual life. Jesus is suffering as no man has ever suffered or could suffer a spiritual suffering that could only be borne on the shoulders of a God 
who would descend from his mighty throne in heaven to a manger in Bethlehem and become like us so that we could become like him. Only God could take that place on the cross. You remember there was two other thieves who were dying a similar death than Jesus. It was the spiritual suffering and the death of Jesus Christ, the separation from the Father, that won for you and I eternal life. We are broken physically, but we are far more broken spiritually. We need to be born again. So Matthew's words, as we will continue through this long day and sermons to come if God will tarry. And by the way, it's only between 6 and 7 a.m. on Good Friday morning. 6 o'clock in the morning on Friday. His words are limited when it comes to the physical sufferings of Jesus. Because his intent is to show us the spiritual nature of the work of Jesus Christ. And that that was necessary for our release. We, like Barabbas, need more than a physical substitution. We need an eternal. We need a spiritual. And we need a holy substitution. Or we die. Eternally. Let's pray.